Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Books We Read. So it's been a while. We've had a bit of a break, and that's because Jaren has experienced some some really interesting life changes. Um, yeah, why don't you tell us about that, Jaren? So the first big one is that I moved to Pennsylvania. Prior to that, I lived in Tennessee, which is where Reagan and I currently are as we record this. But I moved to Pennsylvania, and I started a new job, and I also finished my last semester of college. So a couple of factors, such as those three, made my life a bit more complicated and busy. And uh, I think everybody should just take a moment to congratulate Jaren for graduating. You're graduating tomorrow. Right. Uh, the ceremonies are this evening and tomorrow morning. So okay. there's a commissioning and a commencement. One is today and one is tomorrow. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, bachelor's degree in? English literature. Okay, so that would make you very much more qualified to be on this podcast than myself. <laughs> He's not sure. Okay, very good. Wow, this is great. So yes, so apologies to everyone for... Uh, not releasing episodes quite like we used to, but hey, that's okay. We've been busy, you know, like getting life figured out and things. We're going to dive in. This is going to be interesting. Um, we have two wildly different books. You want to go first or should I? Sure, I can go first. Okay, this will be great. The book I will be talking about is actually, it's not a book. It's a play by William Shakespeare called Measure for Measure. He wrote it in 1603 or 1604, people believe. It wasn't published until 1623, but he did write it uh, a couple decades before it was actually published. It was listed as comedy, I think, when it was first published. It was categorized as comedy, but don't don't assume that because of that it is funny or hilarious. It's not. It's actually kind of weighty and brings up some some serious ethical questions. So... What I'll do is I'll talk a bit about the characters, the plot, and then I'll raise the ethical questions, and maybe Reagan can venture to answer them. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I've never read this, by the way, so, so I'm coming in a little blind here. So. The story takes place in Italy, and out of piety, perhaps piety, for whatever reason, in the guise of piety, the politicians decide that it would be a good idea to make those who participate in immorality susceptible to death. So Angelo is one of the politicians in this region of Italy, and so he's responsible for carrying out their um, morality laws. So he is the villain of the play. There is a young man named Claudio, and at the beginning of the play, it is discovered that his girlfriend is pregnant, and the authorities have found out about that. So kind of the, the problem in the play, the superficial problem, is that Claudio is arrested and is just about to be executed. Claudio has a sister named Isabella, who is on her way to becoming a nun. She's the saintly character. She's kind of the hero of the play. Isabella goes to Angelo, the villainous um, politician who's trying to enforce morality with the law, and she pleads for the life of her brother. So Angelo 
has this very righteous response. He says, sure, we can save Claudio's life, but you have to sleep with me first. So there's kind of a contradiction there. Um, Angelo, the one trying to enforce morality and who wants to kill Claudio for failing to do so, sets up these conditions. Hmm. So Isabella's like, okay, I will think about it. So she goes to um, Claudio in prison, and she tells him the conditions of how his life might be spared. Just uh, need to find this beautiful insult that comes at this point. <laughs> Shakespeare was the master of insults. <laughs> so how long is this play? I'm curious. Performed about three hours. Okay. It, it would take me a lot longer than that to read. It's Old English or Middle English, so it's, ah. it's very thick, and it, it's a slow read for me. Okay, okay, so what's this okay. superb insult from Shakespeare? <laughs> so so Isabella goes to visit um, her brother Claudio in prison, and she tells him the conditions that Angelo has set for his life to be spared. And Claudio's like, oh, that's a great idea. You should go ahead with this. And here's um, Isabella's response. Oh, you beast, oh, faithless coward, oh, dishonest wretch, wilt thou be made... A man out of my vice. Is it not a kind of incest to take life from thine own sister's shame? What should I think? So she's thinking he's really selfish, basically. That's basically what she's thinking. (laughs) This is such a wild story. Oh my. Claudio's life is saved at the end of the play. This is kind of a spoiler warning. Sorry about that. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Claudio's life is saved. But it's not what the conditions that Angelo set up. They were mm-hmm. conniving and a bit dishonest. And the protagonists of the play find a way to save Claudio's life mm-hmm. without the conditions that Angelo set up. But it does raise an interesting ethical dilemma. Is it right for Isabella to participate in something's wrong, allow herself to be violated for her brother's life? Mm-hmm. So if she does not comply, apparently her brother would be killed. And what is worth sacrificing for the sake of his life? Hmm. Oh, my. So, but in the play, she chooses not to and finds another way. Is that Exactly. Is that right? They find a complex workaround. A complex workaround. See, I would, I, that's, that would be the angle I would want to take. Because for me, it seems like there's always got to be another way, right? That's possibly an answer that Shakespeare is proposing through the narrative. It would um, seem like, maybe. Yeah. The answer would be to find another way. Also, in the play, he undermines the hierarchy and kind of sets hmm. the people in positions of power as the villains. And the ethical or the right solution is found through undermining the conditions that they set up. Yeah, because that's what I was wondering, too, because you're almost continuing the the evil structure the the institution that's in place that caused this to happen to begin with by complying you're keeping that in existence for you know someone else to experience something similar exactly and that's that's how i interpret it uh shakespeare didn't outright say that the point of his play was to undermine the hierarchies the institutions but that is i think a legitimate interpretation and it's how i read it do you, is there any speculation that maybe he was targeting a specific um, hierarchy or institute in his own 
time and place? I, I don't know. I haven't read all the scholarship on it. Sure. It is interesting, though, that the way he frames it is that the guy, um, Angelo, who's trying to enforce morality, mm-hmm. is is the hypocrite of the play. So I don't yeah, know. Wow. Yeah, wow. It's, it's framed in terms of religion, so I don't know if perhaps he's making a jab at the synthesis of church and state and using the government to enforce what the religious system would have regarded as good. Like legis- the whole legislating morality exactly. argument, the, you know, ban this or stop that. Yeah. Oh, boy. I'd love to ask what he would, yeah, like, what was, what did he have in mind specifically, you know? like We wish we could ask him. Yeah, that that would be amazing, actually. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. I've, this is a terrible random fact about me. I don't think I've ever read a Shakespeare play all the way through. That that is really sad. <laughs> I own the complete unabridged whatever set of Shakespeare plays. It's like this huge, massive set on my bookshelf that looks really amazing. You know, it's like these old antique, special bound. So I feel so, you know, scholarly. Because it's sitting on your shelf. Exactly. They they're very dusty. Actually, <laughs> they've been there for a long time. It's definitely <laughs> anyway. worth spending some time with Shakespeare. He okay. was incredibly influential in Western literature and Western mm-hmm. thought. So, understanding him mm-hmm. provides some context for understanding a lot of other things in the Western world and Western literature. Yeah. Now, here's what I don't get. They <laughs> okay. expect they expect in literature classes, they expect. Uh-oh. Is your... My, my microphone is okay, it's just falling off here. A little bit of context to your audience. <laughs> the setup we have for our mics, the way they're mounted, is is um, high probability of collapsation, which seems to be happening right now. So pardon us while we fix that. Okay. I tied the clamp. Okay. I think we're good. Okay. As I was saying, uh-huh. it's strange. They expect Shakespeare plays to be read as literature. Okay. But they're actually plays are meant to be consumed by means of watching a performance. There's hmm. very few stage directions or other context provided. Most of the play is just written dialogue. Oh. So if you watch the play as it's meant to be performed, you will see much more context and depth than if you only read it. Okay, well that's all I have to say about Measure for Measure. Well, <clears throat> I'm going to do an abrupt um, change of direction with my book. So, Jaren, I don't think this is one you've read, right? No, I okay. have not read it. So, this book is is called Becoming by Michelle Obama, which is a pretty new, pretty new book. Actually, let me just quickly pull up. I think it was published. Let me see. Yeah, exactly a year ago, November 2018. Um, quite a popular book i don't even know how many copies sold but it was a lot um i listened to it on audio which i encourage because for one thing it's pretty long but also she narrates the book herself which is interesting you get a little extra flavor of the personality coming through um first off it's it's very well written actually i really enjoyed it as it just a book her story um and the thing that surprised me the most obviously her husband was president of the United States. There's a whole lot of interesting things. And, and then how his presidency came to an end and then the replacement with the current president we have now was such a 
giant change in the geopolitical scene and all this, you know, upheaval. She hardly even talks about that, which was a blessing, I think, because I, you know, I don't feel like we need any more dirt being thrown around um, right now. But I enjoyed it just for the story it was. She seemed to focus very much on her story, like her life growing up and then um, their family's life. And the thing that probably surprised me the most, I'd never quite realized where she came from. Southside Chicago, not a good place to live at all. And she tells a story of a a young um, African-American girl that's from the same area of Chicago after she had left and moved into, I forget, another city that was killed in a shooting while she was walking home from school. And she's like, wow, like I know that street. I've walked that street myself as, you know, when she was in school and that very well could have been me. And now look, here I am you know, first lady <laughs> and married to the president and just seeing that change of culture and, and how her thing is that should never have to happen to anybody and that she was able to get out and maybe she can help more people get out of those types of circumstances with the gang violence and things that she experienced. So somehow, and I, I wish she would go into more detail, but somehow she went from that straight to Princeton University, which is a quantum leap. And she talks about how that was not exactly an easy thing as we all know with the elite institutions of america um that can be a very large culture gap uh, between that and you know the streets of chicago and then from there graduates with a law degree at the harvard law school so straight to the top of um i guess he would say professionalism um working a a really really solid job as a, a really good lawyer and that's where she met um her future husband barack obama um and I think the thing that stood out to me the most in all of this story is just how human it is. The the way, and I know it's probably not the same, you know, every account is biased, but they struck me as such an, just an interesting family. They, um, you know, after they get married, going through the whole process of getting into politics and the travels that they had as a family. And, and it was just like, wow, that'd be actually kind of neat just to meet them as humans. See, we see them as way up there you know living in the white house but just how down to earth and actually normal these people really are and at the end of the day um they're probably just humans trying to live the life that they seem see as best for their family and the people around them um so jaron you and i are from the bible belt south deep south we all heard it when uh obama became president that like he was this evil person because we're from i mean it's this is a very republican area and uh and i mean when you're growing up hearing that you just like get these images of this person just being this evil horrible person and this book really helped me open my eyes to sure there's some disagreements but they are just human beings too what like do you remember that like when yes, the when the election I remember, season and... i remember one conversation where the fear was that he would be in part responsible for ushering in the apocalypse. Oh, really? Yes. Just no big deal, right? Apocalypse, okay. <laughs> That's what Democrats do. <laughs> That's just, you know, because now, in retrospect, we look back and we're like, hey, yeah, whatever. I mean, they were they were human beings, you know, and, and we tend to, I don't know, why, why, why do we tend to demonize people in power? This may be too strong a word. Why do we tend to look at people in power and just immediately think bad things? about them isn't that kind of human nature 
but the thing is, and she talks about it in the book, because a lot of this um, pushback that you and I would have experienced would have been from church people, Christians. Exactly. But she talks about in the book, you know, they were married in a church. They went to church. They were members of, I forget which church in Chicago. And then when they moved to D.C., obviously they changed to another church. Now, uh, they didn't go every Sunday. They weren't like teaching the Sunday school class. Not that level of involvement. But she does talk about that as something that was meaningful to them that they did. And I'm like, okay, so why, like, why? People never talked about that. You know, they were always like, he's a, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there was that whole thing. Oh, no, he's actually a Muslim. But yet they never talked about how he would also go to church, too. I don't know. It's just interesting. And obviously, I have a tremendous amount of disagreements with things that were done, whatever. But this book was just really helpful for me to to see them as humans that that were, and I think probably were trying to, you know, live in a way that was meaningful and helpful for their own families. And um, she, the stories she has are, are really fun, actually, and hilarious sometimes because I've never thought about the logistics of living in the White House. She's like, so she'd be living in the White House, time to cook supper. Oh, we need groceries. How do you run down the street and buy groceries as the first lady? Well, so, hey, Secret Service, I need to go down to, you know, the store at the corner of the street and buy some food for like and 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 she walks through the complex logistics of that and she said they got it down to a science where she would like wear a disguise and go with minimum number of secret service and they would take a you know a car that wasn't you know conspicuous and she got it down to where she could run down to the corner store and buy food really fast and come back and nobody would even know that she like that but she actually went grocery shopping yes. personally Absolutely, yeah. And, I thought she and, would have somebody do that for her. Well, that was the hilarious part. So, no. Here's the thing that people don't understand about the White House. So, they have to pop, they have to buy their own food. The, the grocery bill is on them. Obviously, the rent and utilities are paid because they're living in the White House, obviously. But other things, like just your living expenses in general, nope. You you pay for that yourself. Now, again, Secret Service is covered. Your you know transportation is generally covered because it's like armored vehicles and you know airplanes and things. But like if you want to go on a vacation, you have to pay for that yourself as the president of the United States, which just blew my mind. I had no idea. So like our current president loves to get on his, you know, the Marine One helicopter and fly down to a certain golf course he likes to play at. He has to pay the golf course fee just like anybody else. The White House doesn't pay for that, you know. And it's just really interesting things. I guess she unpacks the challenges of trying to raise a family and then having to navigate, like, the food bill. (laughs) They didn't understand. When you're hosting people, you're expected to have this high, um, you know, level of dining, and it was, like, draining their budget um, really quickly. (laughs) So they had to quick figure out how to cut their grocery bill down. It was just funny things like that. It was like, oh, wow, like they were a normal human family. Like their kids went to school down the street like anybody else. You know, sure, it was a really good school, but they had, the children had to go through that stigma of your dad is the president of the United States and you're sitting in class with me, you know. And they had, oh, they said that was really challenging, you know. And um, anyway, fun stuff. It opened my eyes to all kinds of interesting things I've never thought about before. I feel like we're getting off in the weeds, but it's fun. You owe it so, to yourself. You should read it sometime. That's very interesting. So you say that she didn't get much into the politics of being the president and the political issues that were an issue when Barack Obama was the president. But did hearing a more human side of their family help you understand more the policies that they pushed mm-hmm. for or the politics that were kind of defining to his presidency? Yeah, for example, um, 
Michelle Obama's father was very, very ill for many years. And eventually, I mean, it just got to the point where it crippled him and he couldn't work. And they didn't have healthcare options available to him. You know, I mean, it's streets of Chicago living in a tiny little apartment. And you can see that coming through pretty clearly in their policies of wanting to pass some good health care for people. And I can see why you would be very emotionally invested in wanting that to happen. Because you're like, if this could have happened for my family, you know, how much longer of quality of life could have my own father had? So of course you would want to push something like that. You know, um, bills on education, because she saw the value of education to you know, pull herself out of the streets of Chicago and become, you know, a person with a, a good job uh, and how important that is. So, we, okay, we need to find ways to make education better. You know, so that was a, a really big push. Um, and yeah, you actually started seeing, oh, like that's probably what they're thinking and where they're coming from. Honestly, they're human, so they're probably just coming out from their own personal experience and, and biases like, like anybody else, you know. So. All right, so shall we bring this podcast to an ending? Yes, and since we haven't done this in a while, this is one of our longer podcasts. Goodness, it's like a bonus for you guys that are all listening. We're at like 27 minutes. Wow. So maybe remind us again, Reagan, what the book was that you were just talking about. Sure. Becoming by Michelle Obama. And I spoke about Measure for Measure by William Shakespeare, which you can find available almost anywhere classics are published or on Kindle or read it free online. Mm-hmm. Yes. And obviously the book I mentioned is very much still in bestseller lists. I believe it's quite popular, but anyway, thanks everybody for listening. This has been fun and we will be back in two weeks. Okay. The next books we're going to do. Oh my goodness. You guys are in for a treat. It's going to be crazy. <laughs> anyway, thanks so much for listening to everyone. Cool.